And it feels like a month since we've been, been here. We were here two weeks ago for baptism, then we, we took that once a month break that we're going to do for our volunteers. Probably we may do that in November and December as well, just because it's a small crew running stuff right now, and so we don't want people to get exhausted and worn out. But good to be back. Um, really good to be back. We are back in our conversation series about this week and one more week. I'm really excited to kind of wrap this up and move on into the uh, Thanksgiving Christmas season. That's crazy. Man, anyway, sorry. Maybe you don't get excited like I do, but I get excited. So, man, this morning we're, we're going to look at a passage. Um, it, it's a conversation, but I think very often we jump to the end of it. Because uh, in this conversation, the way that it wraps up is probably the most often quoted verse in the entire Bible. And so, but I think it, that's good and that's bad. Um, I remember a couple of years ago when we were still in Spill the Beans, like we, we walked through this passage um, in a little bit more of a lengthy setting than we can do today. But it's just, it's one of these places, like we, we quote this verse a lot. You know, even people that, that are not believers, they quote this verse. Uh, but the problem with that is, unless we understand why it's there and exactly what's being said, like the context, who's talking, why they're talking, what are they talking about, like I think we just only get a, a glimpse of what it's trying to say. And it's, it's, it's pivotal. Um, this particular chapter in John chapter 3 is where we're going to be uh, Charles Spurgeon, he actually said, like, if I was going to meet a guy on his deathbed, and this was the last thing he would hear, he said, this is the chapter that I would read to him. Uh, and it's, it's that big. And so for us to understand the gospel, it, it's very weighty, like this chapter. Uh, for us to understand it for salvation reasons, really, really weighty. But even for us to understand this as a means of conveying the gospel, like actually being able to use the gospel in language and in word, which we must do if we're seeking to make disciples, like we need to have a good grasp as to what this is saying. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3, and we're going to read about a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, I'm going to pray, and we're going we're gonna to jump, jump in and read through the text, and then we're going to go, go through and talk about it. And we're going to jump around, jump around a little bit back to the Old Testament a couple places. I'm just going to read those. You won't have to do Bible drill and turn with me, but um, just kind of be prepared. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, for, um, God, we thank you for the gospel today. We thank you that there is good news uh, that is not dependent upon me, and it's not dependent on the we, but it's just dependent on you. God, thank you for that good news. Thank you that it's trustworthy. Thank you that it's, um, it's life-giving. God, thank you that it's true. Um, thank you for all those things that make the gospel so, so good for us um, and so necessary. God, I pray as we read your word today and as we read about an exchange between a very learned man and Jesus, God, I pray that we hear exactly what we need to hear uh, to understand the gospel better. Um, maybe for those of us who are not yet following you, God, that you would do something huge in that, that your spirit would speak and that you would draw people to yourself today. But also, God, for those of us who do follow you and we're seeking to make disciples who make disciples, God, we must understand what the gospel really is and how it plays out. And God, what we need to know is, is a lot of it's right here today. So I pray that we would hear. We thank you, God, for loving us. We thank you, God, for Jesus. We thank you for your word. We pray that we can enjoy all of that this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, read a few verses and we'll chat. It said, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him. We're going to make a note there. Jesus is answering, but Nicodemus did not ask a question. 
We'll come back to that. It says, and Jesus answered him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, or that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We're going to stop there. We'll read the rest in a moment. And so what we know right now in this place, John, you're very foggy. Uh, what we know is that uh, this guy, Nicodemus, he was a part of the Pharisees. He was a part of the religious establishment. Uh, they, they held on to the law with great vigor. They taught the law with great vigor. Um, they were zealous about the law because everything that they knew, everything that they loved, their hope, it hinged upon the law. And so it was a big deal. And when we say the law, we're talking about the things that God gave, the statutes, the do's, the do-nots, um, based on the goodness and the character of God and his love for us. Like, their life was based on that. And it says he came to Jesus by night. Even at this point, John 3 seems like, according to the other Gospels, like the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this would have been very early. But a, a good deal of time had already passed. Like, this was not like, you know, right off the bat for Jesus' ministry. He had already done several things. Go back and read the beginnings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, and get about a quarter of the way into those. And that's probably about the time frame we're looking at here. And so he had healed people. He had taught with great authority. He had done things that a carpenter's son should not be able to do but yet he had done them. Um, and so Nicodemus decides that I have a question. I have a question for this rabbi, this rabbi who never went to rabbinical school, this rabbi who should not have what he has. I have a question. But Nicodemus decided to go at night. Likely this was like night night, like oh dark 30 night, so that no one else would see because he didn't want his pharisaical brothers and the scribes to know that he was going to this new rebellious rabbi who had gathered fishermen and tax collectors as his disciples, like he didn't want his friends to know because it would have caused great trouble. The beautiful thing about this is like we've talked about some of these conversations and some of these stories. Some ended really well. We see Bartimaeus following Jesus on the way. We see the rich young ruler drop his head, and we don't know what happened to him. We see Jesus and the lawyer just a few weeks ago. We don't know what happened to the lawyer. Uh, but we know one of the beautiful things about this passage is at the end of Jesus' life, before he was resurrected, we see Nicodemus again. So right there, big really big, vastly important to think, like, I mean, I don't want to give this away, to think of someone so entrenched in religion that it was leading people away from God instead of to God that this man could hear the words of Jesus and believe. It's huge. We can't overlook it. If we go towards the end of the Gospels, it was, it was Jesus, I mean, it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that went and they said, can we have his body? And it said that Nicodemus brought like a pallet load of spices and herbs to serve Jesus one more time because they, they still didn't understand that he was coming back in just a few days. And so they were like, man, your words, they changed my life. Let me give you what I can. And so that, even to give away that, that's a, that's a big deal about this story. And so Nicodemus goes at night, and apparently he has a question for Jesus, but he just goes to him and he starts the conversation with, uh, we can see... I can see that there's something different about you, teacher. You're not like the rest. The things that you say, the things that you've done should not happen, so you really must not just be a rabbi, not just be a rabbi, not just be a teacher, 
but you're something else entirely. And so before he could even ask the question that was on his heart, Jesus answers. Because apparently, just like the rich young ruler about a month ago, just like the lawyer, um, he had this burning question in him, and it was just simply this, what must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to see this kingdom that you're talking about? What must I do? Before he could even ask, Jesus answers the question, and this is what Jesus says. Verse 3, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, for us, even in our, our semi-church culture, um, like we, we've heard this idea of being born again. A lot of us have. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, that's great. I'm glad you're hearing it for the very first time today. But, but for a lot of us, if we grew up in the South, we've heard, like, you know, even maybe the question, are you a born-again believer? And, you know, like, born again, that's where this comes from, like new, made new. Corinthians tells us that, behold, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Look, the old is gone, the new has come. Hallelujah. I mean, that's good. And so, new creation. So he's saying, look, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so, but imagine if we had not heard that before. Imagine if this was our first time, this landing on, like, fresh ears. Our response would have been pretty close to Nicodemus because he heard it and he was like, nope, not doing that. I mean, he's like, what, what do you mean? And he wasn't being a smart aleck. He wasn't being that because he obviously had respect for Jesus. He was coming to ask him like an eternal question at night, and he knew that it could be a great risk, so he really wanted to hear. He wasn't one of these Pharisees that was trying to trip Jesus. He was really genuinely curious and had an eternal question. And so Jesus just said, look, unless you're born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus' words, he said, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He's like, I don't, I don't get it. And so imagine for us, it would probably be a very similar reaction. Like, Jesus, I don't, I don't understand what you're asking me to do. I don't understand what you're asking me to do. And now take the background, the culture, the life of Nicodemus, juxtapose that on my life and understand like the, the level in which he was entrenched and wrapped up in the system of Judaism and the law, like put that on you for a minute and start to imagine for just a second that you have been living this, this whole deal for your life, that it's, it is really what I do and what I don't do that makes me acceptable to God. Holiness is sought after by men in what they do. Like a Imagine that is your mantra. Imagine that is your life. That is the way that you have gone after pursuing God. And so at this point, yes, that is why the law was there. It was to point them to the need for grace. But imagine that your entire life hinged upon this idea that I have to earn it. I have to work for it. I have to be so diligent because I'm in fear of losing, like, the favor of God based on my behavior. And so for him to hear, you must be born again. Jesus uh, clarifies a little bit, but by clarifying, he just muddies the waters even further to a degree. And so after Nicodemus said, well, how can this be? I'm not going to do that. There's no way that that's going to happen. Jesus answered, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, a parallel statement where he's going to add a little bit more. In verse 5, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so let me tell you the skill that we're seeing in Jesus right now, because there's several interpretations of this one little line right here, the water and the spirit idea. Uh, one, one interpretation is that Jesus is alluding to baptism. And I can, I'll go ahead and just say, like, uh, number one, baptism is not saving. 
okay? And also the context of this passage and in the place of Jesus' earthly ministry, like it wouldn't make sense for him to be relating baptism and rebirth at the same time. So it's probably not that. The second is maybe a very elementary understanding, and it's one that I adhere to for a long time, just reading the text as literally as I could. I thought that he was talking about a physical birth and a spiritual birth. You must be born of water and of spirit. Like the, the water idea, like the waters have broken, you know, that's a pretty scary thing. Like my wife and I, to be honest, we watch Call the Midwife. We see it happen all the time. It just, it just, just falls out, and so the waters break, and so maybe that was an illusion. But here's the deal. Back in Greek times and in these times, that wasn't phrasing for physical birth, like the water birth. And so here's the skill of Jesus. And this is the thing that we take away as disciple makers, want to be, need to be disciple makers. Jesus was talking to a guy who was entrenched in Judaism, who was entrenched in the law, who was entrenched in the word, and he wasn't getting it. He wasn't understanding. He's like, I don't know what you mean by born again. I don't know what you mean by start over. I don't know what you mean. And so what Jesus did skillfully, masterfully, like only Jesus could do, is he decided, okay, well, I'm going to speak to you in your language, Nicodemus. I'm going to talk to you in your language. And so what he did and what would be over our heads because we're not entrenched in that system is he just made a quick little turn and he drew Nicodemus' attention to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, quickly. And we would miss it because, to be honest, I didn't grow up in that system. I, I didn't go to rabbinical school. I was not the teacher of the Jews like Nicodemus was. But Nicodemus, he was all of those things, and he would have heard this and he would have been like, oh, I see what you did. I see what you did. So he was... He was hearkening back to Ezekiel chapter, 35, chapter 36, verses 25 and 27, uh, 25 through 27. I'm just going to read it. It's not going to be on the screen. And this was looking forward, the prophet Ezekiel speaking to the people of Israel about the day that would come, messianic prophecy to a degree. And he said, I will sprinkle you clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What Jesus did is he said, unless one is new and made clean by God himself, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is made new and made clean By God himself, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so again, we kind of have to think like Nicodemus at this point. And Nicodemus, understand, like, Nicodemus had been trying to make himself clean this entire time. Like, he had been trying to avoid the filth. He had been trying to do the good in order to do the things that Jesus is telling him now that only God can do. That only God will clean you. He will metaphorically sprinkle you with water, wipe away, clear away all of your junk, and he will put a new heart, a new spirit in you. He's telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to understand you cannot get yourself there. For us, maybe we hear it and we're like, man, that's not so extreme. But for Nicodemus, it would have been a stake through his heart. 
Because while I've talked about it, like, I'll be honest, like, my heart, it tends towards religion. My, my heart does. Like, it tends towards systems and checklists, and I, and I would like to believe that that's a human condition. I would like to believe that I gravitate towards that because it's simple, it's clean, and it's easy. But deep down, I have to admit, I know that I do it because I fear relationship with God, because relationship with God has much more, like, strings attached and much more things that are attached to my heart tugging and pulling and either pulling me away from sin and pushing me towards righteousness, where a list is staring. And a list has no personality. A list does not have love attached. And so I can live that sterile life easily without being emotionally entangled. But for Nicodemus, this would have been just like the realization that to enter the kingdom of God, he would have to be something else entirely. He would have to let go of everything that he had built through education through teaching, through discipline, through practice, through repetition, through life. It's the same thing we hear Paul professing when Paul is talking in Philippians and he's giving his religious pedigree in Philippians chapter 3. He was like, man, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I had the best school. I had the best of everything. But now where I stand, I count it all as loss. He's like, it it's no good to me anymore by comparison to Jesus. He's like, I would willingly give up every one of those things just for the unsurpassing glory. For Nicodemus, it would be like the crossroads for us to say, hey, everything that you love, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be willing to abandon See, I think that we've thought that the gospel is um, like a fluffy bunny rabbit and we have no allergies. And everybody would love a fluffy bunny rabbit if we didn't have allergies. That it's easy, it's just, maybe it's a terrible metaphor. Maybe I'm thinking about my daughter right now. But it's just this, this easy thing that is so approachable and it's so just easy. But the reality that's attached to the gospel is over and over and over Jesus says, look, if, if you want this, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to yourself. You have to metaphorically even, uh, if you don't hate your mother and father and love me more by comparison, like you're not fit for the kingdom. Like and those, are, those are difficult, complicated, heavy, heavy words. This is exactly what Nicodemus was hearing right now. He's like, you're telling me I have to abandon everything I know and love, adhere to and teach, and I've placed my hope in. And Jesus is like, yes. Yes. Because only God can make you clean. Only God can make you new. And that's what has to happen for you to enter the kingdom of God. So he continues on. Verse 6, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Verse 7, here's Jesus again getting down to, to Nicodemus's level. He says, do not marvel at, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows uh, where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus here, again, did something incredibly masterful, and it would go over our head if we had not been raised like Nicodemus, and it most of the time does. Here, he's taking him one chapter later in the book of Ezekiel uh, to this crazy passage in which the prophet of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is led to this, village, I mean, this, this valley of dry bones. 
This valley of dry bones, just like bones that are on top of the earth. There's no longer meat on them. It's as dead as you can be. And, and God tells Ezekiel, he's like, look, what I want you to do is I want you to prophesy over these bones right now, and I want you to watch and see what is going to happen. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, just uh, in verses 1 through 14, I'm not going to read it all, um, but in just this one place in verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord God, or the sovereign Lord to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Here, this word pneuma is the Greek word that's being used over and over here. And it would be like us using a lowercase b breath or a capital case, a capital case, a capital b breath. It's the same word for wind and spirit. And so in this particular passage, he's like, look, don't, don't let your mind be warped or broken by me saying that the Spirit or God's breath, capital B, will come and make something new. And he's going ahead and he's moving him back to this, this prophecy in Ezekiel about just this idea of God giving life to where there was none. God putting meat on the bones. He's like, don't marvel on it, but God can do it. Don't let your brain just be destroyed by it. God gives life. He will take what is dead, and he will put meat on it. He will take the dry bones. And even in the passage in Ezekiel, it's so beautiful. It says that uh, the tendons and the ligaments or the sinew was added, and then the muscle was added, and then they became living and breathing because God supplanted his breath or his pneuma in them. He said, you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to understand that that is a work of God, not a work of you. But, we'll get to the but. So Nicodemus said to him, he's like, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel, not a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then in verse 13, he's giving him a qualification for how he can say all of these. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He said, I can tell you these things because I've, I've been there. I've seen it. I know it firsthand because they're mine. They're my words that I'm giving you right now. And then one more time, Jesus is going to take a dip back into the culture and the upbringing of Ezekiel here before we get to the, the very well-memorized verse 16. He gives this qualification. Like I just said, uh, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to understand that's nothing you're going to do on your own. You cannot do it. That is a work of God. He will clean you. He will make you new. He will give you meat on your dead, dry bones. But then he says this, verse 14. And for us, it would go right over our head. He said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so now he says, look, this is a work of God. You cannot do it on your own. Um, you have to be made new. God does that. You have to have new life. God does that. You have to be made clean. God does that. And then here's the, the qualification that he puts on. All you have to do is believe. Is believe. And we're going to come back to the verse that was right before that, but it leads us to John 3.16, which we quote frequently. We bumper sticker it. We bracelet it. We put it on t-shirts. We do all those things. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
And verse 17, right after it, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order, the, for the world might, in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so here we have this, this pattern or this structure that this work of God that comes to us so that we may enter the kingdom of God, so that we may be made clean, um, it is done by God, and our part is that we simply believe. But that word is... Like, that word is tricky. That word is loaded. That word is not so simple to understand, and he knew it would not be that simple for Nicodemus to understand. Because at this point, if he would have asked Nicodemus, do you believe? He's like, yeah, I know everything. But he was trying to turn the ship and say, no, 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 I'm not asking you what you know. I'm asking you what you believe. And so he, he jumped him back to Numbers chapter 21, which we would call Numbers chapter 21. He would have called it something different. He would have called it elementary school reading probably for him. But at this point, the people of Israel, they had been wandering in the desert. Um, They had had a pattern of, uh, they fled captivity in Egypt. Um, They had seen God do incredibly crazy, ridiculous, miraculous things. They had seen God supply uh, need for them. They had seen God let it rain like fried chicken and bread from heaven. It wasn't fried chicken, it was pigeon. But either way, like at one point, there was, just, there was just bird to eat. And then there was this other stuff, and they didn't even know what it was, but it was like sweet honey bread. And they, and they were fed. They had seen water come from a rock. They had seen all this stuff. And then we find them in chapter 21, and it says, from Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Like the literal translation here is, they began to whine. That's, that's not, but that's the way that I would read it. They began to whine. And it says, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food. That's a lie. There's no water. That's a lie. And we loathe this worthless food, even though they said there is no food. We loathe the worthless food that we have. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. It's crazy. And the people came to Moses, and they said, we've sinned. We made a mistake. I'm sorry, I read it, and it makes me laugh, but at the same time, it makes me sad because I realize that I am just like the people of Israel. God provides, and then I whine. God provides, and then I whine. But either way, uh, they, come to, they come to Moses. They're like, hey, we've sinned. We've seen the snakes. They're really scary. They, they're, just, they're just popping up out of the sand. They're walking in this place right now that's like brown rock and dirt. And they're walking basically in circles for 40 years because of their disobedience. Go back, read the whole story. It's, it, it's amazing. Um, but they're walking around. They begin to complain. They do it over and over. God provides, they get impatient. God provides, they get impatient. God provides, they get impatient. And God will use something to bring them back around. In this case, it was these sand serpents. They would just be under the sand. People would be walking around. Bam, they get bit, they die. And then after enough people died, they were like, oh, this, this is God. This is God. We, uh, we've screwed up. We did it again. Um, I remember when we did it last week after the bread, and it was awesome. And after the, after the pigeon, that was really good, too. Original recipe was really good. Um, and then all of a sudden, they get bit and they die. They go to Moses. We've sinned. And so we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the serpent and live. It's funny that Jesus takes Nicodemus back to this story because he wants him to understand what believe looks like. He wants him to understand that it's not just to know, it's not knowledge-based. No, no, no. No, it is placing your entire hope for your life in one thing, 
Because imagine, imagine walking through the desert. Imagine everything's the same color, from the clothes, basically, to the hair, to the sand, to the rocks. And you're walking around, and there, there are these snakes, and they bite you. And here's your only chance. You have to find a stick with a bronze serpent that happens to be about the same color as everything else that you've been looking at for the past months and years. And you know that your only shot, your only chance is to look at that. You know that there's no other way. You know that medicine's not going to fix you. You know that there are no leaves that you can chew and make a poultice and slap it on the bike. You know that you can't make the X cut and suck out the venom. It doesn't work. All of it. You get bit, you die. There's only one shot. You have to look at that stick with that bronze serpent that's being held up. And if you look at that, you live. See, here's where belief gets cloudy for us. When we read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We hear that word believe, and we don't understand that everything hinges upon what we believe. We read that as a suggestion. We read that as a good idea. What Jesus is so skillfully getting Nicodemus to understand is that when we believe in Jesus, we believe in just Jesus. Just Jesus. If we're going to place our hope in something, it's not a system. It's not a checklist. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so that the only way we will have eternal life is we look on him and we believe in just him. See, imagine, imagine for a minute for us if it was a landscape of everything being monochromatic, one color, and we knew that death was imminent. And we just had to find Jesus. Imagine if we thought that's what belief looked like. Imagine if that's what we thought belief looked like for our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members. Imagine if you were living in that landscape and your best friend got bit. What would you do? Would you put them on your shoulders and carry them wherever you could so that they could see the snake? Because by the way, this wasn't 30 people. This wasn't 40 people. This was far more than 20,000 people. Some estimates put it in the millions. And there's one serpent. What would you do? What would we do if we got bit and there was just one chance? One chance. He said, Nicodemus, you've got to believe like that. Just one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Just one. Just Jesus. Changes everything. Changes everything. On one hand, we have, we perish at the hand of sin. On the other hand, we have hope. 
just one chance at hope. And it's believing in the life, the death, the words, the resurrection, and the person of Jesus to be made right, to be made clean, to be made new, for God to do what only God can do, because we can't, to believe. It's a heavy conversation. For us, I think there's a couple takeaways. There's a lot of takeaways, but I'm just going to give us three. Number one is, um, if we want to enter the kingdom of God, we have to be new. We have to be new, born again, in Jesus' words. And we can't do it. It's not in me. Romans tells us that there is none righteous, there is none righteous, there is none with enough good in them. No, not one, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory. glory. None and all. None good enough, all have sinned. We're all busted. We must be new, but only God can do it. For us, the second thing that we take away, we have to believe like our life depends on it. Because it does. Our eternal life depends on it. We have to believe like our eternal life depends on it. Jesus and just Jesus. Not being good enough. Not whatever system it may be. No, just Jesus. Because by the way, it's his righteousness that saves me, not my own. Because he completed all the things that we couldn't do. All the things that Nicodemus kept banging his head into a wall trying to do. Jesus was the only one capable of doing them all. And he did, in one short life, accomplished all the law. Lived it out perfectly, not transgressing it a single time because he knew we couldn't. We have to believe in his righteousness like our life depends on it. Because it does. But then... I think we can't leave without discussing like the why of all of it. Like the why. Why Jesus? Why the one and only son? Why being raised above mankind and hung until he died? Because God loves us that much. We can't forget that. Because if we forget that, we've just created another religious system. But here's the thing that separates this from everything else. Because the motivation was that God loves us eternally and endlessly enough to give us hope, hope at the cost of his only son. It started with God's love, it concludes with God's love, and everything else in the between is us believing, being made new, and being given clean, perfect hearts because of Jesus. Must be made new, must believe like our life depends on it, and we have to remember it because God loves us that much, that much. God, thank you for weight and heaviness of a passage. Thank you for uh, a life-changing conversation for a man named Nicodemus. Thank you that in spite of his culture, in spite of his upbringing, in spite of everything that he adhered to, he was able to see that you were better. He was able to see that the Son of God was more than, was different than, and was worthy of everything that he had been trying so hard to do. God, I pray that the same understanding would be granted to us by your spirit, God, that it would remind us that we have to believe like our very life depends on it. Like our very life depends on it. 
but also, God, the very life of our neighbors, our kids, our spouses, our co-workers, those that dwell in this city with us, their eternal lives depend on it too. So, God, I pray that you would make us people that would speak clearly about you, that would speak lovingly about you, that would speak openly and repeatedly about you. In the hope, God, that you would draw men and women and children to yourself, grow your kingdom, grow your fame, grow your glory, and that we would get to see it. Thank you for a city that is white with harvest. Thank you for a mission field that not only do we get to work in, but we get to love. Thank you, God, for loving us first, loving us best, and loving us eternally. And it's in your son's name we pray.